Morning. Today we're going to be uh, preaching on Psalm 133. That's one of the Psalms of Ascents. Uh, there's 15 of them, starting at 120. That's the second to last one. And the Psalm of Ascents were when the Israelites were preparing their hearts and their minds, pilgrimage, pilgrimaging to Jerusalem, going up to the city on the hill. And it's what they would use to encourage themselves during that journey, what they would use to teach their kids. They would sing the song, they'd meditate on the psalm. And it's always a great psalm. It's always a great section of the Bible to use on a Sunday morning, um, as you guys, as we all come here, as we commune with one another, with the Lord. It prepares our hearts and our minds for that. Um, That's what those psalms are particularly used for, is the fellowship of believers worshiping with God. Um, We see that this was written by David. Uh, We don't know exactly when this was written by David. Um, And I'm just going to kind of recount some of the events of David that, that lead up to probably the time that this was when he wrote it, um, but if it wasn't, then it definitely contributed to, to, the, to the words he used. So David was anointed king when he was probably in his early to mid-teens, and then, but he wasn't king of Israel, of the united Israel, of both the, or the Judah, kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel, until he was 30. So he had those nearly two decades, and it wasn't a fun time for him. Right? So he was, he was taken in to help Paul, Saul, and Saul was tormented by a spirit. You know, the Lord used David's, you know, gift and instruments to soothe Saul's soul. Saul tried to kill David several times, ran David out. David had to hide. Uh, David became best friends with Saul's son. Uh, that relationship between David and Saul became so tenuous that they had to hide that relationship. David married one of Saul's daughters. She was taken away from him. Uh, David had to hide in the hills from Saul. He had periods of time where he could have killed Saul, but he didn't. Uh, he fought against the Philistines, fought with the Philistines, and he fought against the Philistines again. So I mean, he had this tumultuous time. And then he was made king of Judah. And a civil war ensued among Israel. You know, they had these two powerful men, Joab and Abner. They were, you know, Joab was, Paul, was David's right-hand man. Abner was Saul's right-hand man. They were fighting with one another. Their great men were killing their great men. Joab's younger brother was killed by, Abner's, by Abner. who chased him down, and Abner killed Asahel, Asahel, however you say his name, with the blunt end of his spear. And so Joab used deceit to get vengeance on the death of his brother by, by getting Abner to come back. After he kind of worked behind the scenes with David to unite the kingdom, Joab got Abner to come back, and he killed Abner as vengeance. On top of all this, so you can see this disunity. These are like, these are relatives. This is the kingdom of God, like the, the kingdom on earth of Israel fighting with each other. Saul gets killed. The man who claims that he killed Saul tells David, David kills that man for telling David that Saul was killed and that he had killed Saul. Saul's son, Ishbosheth, was appointed king. Ishbosheth gets assassinated by people and they, get, they cut his head off while he's in bed. They take his head and present it to David. And David cuts off the hands and the feet of the men that presented Saul's son's body to, or head to him and hang the body in the public square. So this is just, I mean, like, you think about the Marvel comic universe and all the movies that are there. Like, this could be a great movie. Like, all the stuff that's going on here. And so you can see that there's disunity here. There's, you know, there's discord. There's, you know... 
all these things that are going on that are causing people to fight one another and kill one another. There's relatives that are killing one another. It's like the Civil War here. Like, you have the North and the South killing one another. This is what's happening, and this is God's kingdom. So in light of all of this, this is what David wrote. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls in the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So after all this civil war is going on, eventually, this is what we read in Psalm, uh, 2 Samuel 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be the shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be a prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king of Hebron, the king of David, and made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed king David king over Israel. So you can imagine, right, like that's got to be an inspiring moment. Like he finally sees all these elders of all the 12 tribes, and they say that you are bone and our, you are our bone and our flesh. So you have this, this setup, and like, this is what David is sensing. He, he understands, I mean, after 20 years, think of where you were 20 years ago, after 20 years, what this brother's dwelling in unity means. So that's, I think that's a lot of what inspired David to write this psalm. And so we're going to look at how this psalm elevates and cherishes unity, and when unity is correctly pursued, we're promised by the command of the God of heaven that his abundant blessing... And we're not going to go into how necessarily to pursue unity all the time because it's a whole other sermon, but we'll just talk about the importance of unity and why uh, we should cherish it and seek after it. So uh, another note I wanted to make is the first line is he, David's thesis straight up front. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. So the word brothers here, and Matt approved that this is the case, we can say it as this is the we are the Christians. When Christians dwell in unity... So we can look at it as brothers and sisters, children of the Lord. This is true for all of us. And it starts with behold. And that's a word we don't use very often. And that whole first line starts with behold and ends in an exclamation point. So it's, it's, getting, it's a signal to the reader to pay attention. And this is what Spurgeon says uh, about the word behold. It's a wonder seldom seen. Therefore behold it. It may be seen for it's the characteristic of real saints. Therefore fail not to inspect it. It is well worthy of admiration. Pause and gaze upon it. It will charm you into imitation. Therefore, note it well. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to pause and gaze upon it so that it may become seen and become our character. And and Lord willing, we're going to let it charm us into imitation. So we're beholding how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And so unity is this idea of oneness, this idea of being whole, it's bringing together. And God is a God of unity. So we see it at the very beginning where God said, uh, he created, some of the days of creation, he said it was, um, sorry, he, he had man shall leave his father and a woman leave his mother and they will become one flesh. And then in Revelation, we see God stamping the name of Jesus on our foreheads and in one voice, we're praising the, temp, the living temple. So, we're all, this is this idea of one, that we are of one mind and of one heart, that we have this one idea stamped upon us. That's what unifies us and pulls us together. And we also see it in the nature of God. He's a triune God. He's three persons in one. So this idea of unity is all throughout the Bible. And so we're focusing on this unity of the brotherhood, of believers, and how important that is. 
and it's good and pleasant. Right? So God is a good God. And so we say that, and it's kind of like, you know, how was, how was dinner last night? It was good. Right? If you said, if it was good to Amber, it might not be, you know, like, if I said great, it would be better. But we lose this idea of good. Right? Like, God is a good God. It's this, it's this idea of goodness. Um, and brothers dwelling in unity is good. So, and you can't hide goodness. I mean, if in 2 Timothy 5, 1 Timothy, it says, you know, good works are conspicuous. Goodness can't be hidden. So when there is unity, there is goodness. We can tell it. We can see it. We can sense it. But it's also pleasant. Uh, and, and the idea of the, in the Old Testament where you see pleasant, oftentimes it's associated with land and with of where, areas of where you're at. So in, in Psalm 16.6, we see the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. And Abraham, Moses, Joshua saw that the land, that promised land, was pleasant. So we have this idea of, this, of God's provision, God's way of providing for them, his household, their households, their families, they are pleasant. They fall in pleasant places. <clears throat> so the most pleasant times are when we're living as, as God, as the Lord has called us. Even when things are difficult, if our consciences are clean, and we're trusting, that the Lord, we're trusting in the Lord's provinces and his sustenance, then we are in a pleasant place. Even if, like, you think of Peter, that night he's in jail, and he's probably potentially thinking he might be killed the next day, he had fallen asleep. And he had fallen asleep so deeply that he had to be woken up, hit pretty hard to be woken up. Right? He had, in his mind, this pleasantness, this trust in God, that God had laid out his, his boundaries in a pleasant way. So brothers dwelling in unity is good and pleasant. Interestingly, in the Old Testament, the closest time we see brothers dwelling in unity isn't when brothers are dwelling in unity, but when they aren't dwelling in unity. In Genesis 13.6, Abram and Lot were both rich, so rich that the land couldn't support them. It says, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And again, we see in Genesis 36, a similar situation with Jacob and Esau. Their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. So they had to separate. They had to go their different ways so that they could have enough land to support their cattle and to support their people. But what happened to Lot? Lot ended up moving to Sodom, and then Sodom was destroyed by sulfur from heaven, and his lost his wife in the process, and he led to a very dysfunctional family after that. And when Esau moved away from the being together, Esau became father of the Edomites, a related tribe to the Israelites, but there was always tension there. There was fighting over the land. There was always that, that tension back and forth. There was disunity there, and largely because they had too much. And one of the things we can think of is, as we're looking to unity is it's hard to dwell in unity if you have too much. Right? Many people who have a lot, like money, fitness, acquaintances, jobs, hobbies, if you have to work, you have to work hard to get it, and you have to work hard to keep it. And it's hard to dwell substantively, substantively, I knew I was going to regret saying that, writing that, with one another if you don't have time and energy to, to dwell with one another. If we're spending all of our time making money, spending all of our time gaining likes or whatever it is, we don't have that time and energy to, to dwell with one another, to dwell in unity, because it's hard work. Dwelling in unity or togetherness, some of the other translations say, it's intentional and active work. It needs to be top of mind. You have to make sacrifices and humble yourself like David did. I mean, David, when he was not killing Saul, 
He knew he was going to be king. He trusted in the Lord, but he didn't do it. Saul was horrible to him, saying horrible things about him, but he didn't do it. He, he trusted in the Lord. He held back, and that takes a lot of energy. You have to wait in the Lord. But as you wait for the Lord, you will see his good design of unity work itself out in goodness and pleasantness. David had moments of goodness and pleasantness during that time. So as we look at this text as New Testament believers, not Old Testament believers, we're looking, they were looking to the Messiah. They were looking to develop and to enshrine the promised land. We're in a different, case, we're in a different place now. Right? Our unity is no longer in developing this promised land, developing something that's here and physical. Our job is to, our unity is in Christ. And so it's, it's a bit different. So I'm going to read the Apostles' Creed. And this is the unity that, as believers, we need to think about. These truths, because the Creed summarizes what we believe as Christians. What we can say as Christians, we go to this church, we go to a different church. These are the truths that we should be pursuing when we're, when we're uh, seeking unity. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven, and he's seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he'll come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic or Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. That's our unity. That's what binds us together. We have all these other issues, baptism, end times, church membership, music style, politics. Those are all important issues, but they're peripheral issues to the central truths. We know that as we focus on the truth of Jesus and who he is, all those peripheral issues, the power and the energy behind those things, they fade away as we seek Christ, as we seek the truth, as we seek what he, who he is. And this isn't a knock on denominations, right? They're good, and in my, they, they exist, and in my opinion, they are good. Um, we can live in unity with our brothers and sisters at The Rock, at New Hope, at Pilgrim, uh, Mago Day, United Baptist. They might all have those different isms and ologies, right? But we can live in unity with them if we have hold to those central truths of who Jesus is and what he's done. It's hard work, though, because we're messy people. So now we have this idea of it's good and pleasant when brothers dwell in unity. And then he uses two images to show that what that really is. And these are cup overflowing images. These are images of abundance and images of significant issues to an Israelite's um, existence. They knew these things very intimately. And James Boyce says the first thing to notice, um, he comments on the oil running down the beard of Aaron, running down on his collar, falling on the mountain, then the dew falling on the mountains of Zion. Right? The abundance, the blessing comes from above Aaron and above the Israelites. It comes down from God. Right? We're, not, we're not ginning up the goodness and pleasantness when we're dwelling in unity. But when we're dwelling in unity, the goodness of God, the blessing, the overflowing abundance of God's blessing for us comes down on us. So when this happens, we are experiencing God's goodness. So the first image, Aaron, he's the brother of Moses. He was the high priest of the Israelites while they were in the wilderness. He was anointed with oil. And then the anointing oil was very expensive Oils, it was used fine spices, myrrh, sweet-smelling cinnamon, aromatic cane, cassia, and a quart of olive oil. So that's poured over the head of Aaron. And it's not just sprinkled, but it's actually poured. So it's abundance coming down on Aaron, pouring down his body, so much so that it's covering his priestly robes all the way down. I mean, he's glistening. Imagine he's kind of glistening in the sun. Um, 
So, but right before that, it talks about anointing the Ark of the Covenant and anointing the temple and anointing their religious instruments. And when they're anointed, when they're consecrated with this anointing oil, they're made holy. And it says, whoever touched these things is made holy. So I think one of the things he is saying, God is saying, or David is saying, is that as we dwell in unity, we're sanctified. We're made whole. This dwelling together is a sanctifying work. So sanctification is the process of becoming more and more holy. The Westminster Confession says it's the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die into sin and live unto righteousness. So the Lord uses our dwelling together right here, us meeting right here, right now, all of us, these people in this room, to that sanctifying process to make so that we are renewed in the whole man after the whole man or woman or whole person after the image of God. We're enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. That's what our dwelling together here this morning is. And again, that's hard work. So we, don't, we, aren't, we can't control who becomes a Christian. We can't control who attends here. We can't control who becomes a member here. So we aren't the ones that choose who, become, who comes to grace. So we get different people. And a lot of times those are good people. And a lot of times, or sometimes, those are hard people. Not bad people, but hard people. So we have all these different things. We have these different personalities, different luggage that we're bringing, different experiences from different churches or families or whatever it is. It all comes together and it's all here. And... There are people that rub you the wrong way. You might be looking at one right now. But that's what we do. Like, we are pulled together to be used to one another. It's like that rock tumbler. You know, you put the rough rocks in there, and then they, they spin and spin and spin and spin, and then they knock off the rough edges. They, they you take a hammer to the hard edges. That's what we're here for. That's what we do to one another. And we do it in a, li- a wise, loving, kind way. Or, Lord willing, we try. But that's the thing about it. Like, there are times where you will be treated in an unwise, unloving way by someone here. Or there might have been times where you have, that's already happened to you by someone here. And you can hold on to that. You can let that be a grudge, but that's not creating unity. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll go to it again, but you think of Philippians 2 and you think of Christ's attitude. You can't, you can't control that person, but you can trust that there's this God that's blessing unity. There's this God that's blessing the humility that comes with unity, the work that comes that way. So the second simile, and I know this is not a good word to use in the summer, but we're going to use it anyway. So the second simile is that dwelling in unity with brothers is like the dew of Hermon falling on the mountains of Zion. So dew in the Old Testament is a code word for the Lord's blessing. In, Psalm, in Proverbs 19.12, it says, The king's wrath is like the roaring of a lion, but his favor is like dew on the grass. And Hosea 14.5 says, I will be like the dew of Israel. He shall grow like the lily and lengthen his roots like Lebanon. So God uses that dew in these dry and arid lands to grow and to establish that root. And this, they don't get rain during the day. They get dew in the morning, and that's what creates those crops to feed the animals, to feed the families to tithe, to keep the the temple going. So dwelling in 
dwelling in unity is like dew replenishing, replenishing Israel. So think of the times you've had an argument or fight with somebody. You've had that tension, that moment of, and it's of, of some flashpoint, and it's not resolved. Right? Do you want to go to where they're going to be the next time? Right? If, if you've had that argument with somebody here some Sunday, and then you come in the next morning, you know, in my mind, if that happens to me, it's happened in the past, I'll wait until church starts, or maybe a few minutes after church, and I'll come and sit in the back. I don't want to make eye contact with the person. I don't want that tension to go. Like, I don't want that flare-up. I don't want the feelings associated with it. I'm going to avoid it, right? So when that disunity is around, you're not having the replenishing effects of that do. You're not having the replenishing effects of that blessing of unity. And those are the things we work through. And when it's resolved, when you've had that flashpoint, and when you resolve it, and you see them, you're like, Praise the Lord this has happened. Praise the Lord it's over. I feel so much better now that we've finally resolved. It's like, it's like taking that thorn out when that happens. And it's, it is replenishing. It's reinvigorating when we see that peace, when we see that goodness come. And again, this is an abundant image. So Mount Hermon is this huge mountain. It's about the size of Mount Washington. You can even ski on it in certain times of the year. And so... And it's the Israelites always saw it as the expansion of God's kingdom. It's like, you know, Maine goes from Madawaska to York. So they, when, they, I, when they said, you know, what, where is Israel? It's, it's from the north, like Mount Hermon. That's kind of their northern boundary of how they say it. And when they think of God's promised land, they think of God's abundance, think of God's goodness. So when you say it's Mount Hermon, you're like, oh, this is God's goodness. This is the promised land that God has given us. So dwelling in unity is this promised land that God has given us. And also, it's a big mountain. And when you think of mountains and big mountains, things are magnified. You get it six inches of snow on the, on the foothills. It's like six feet of snow on the top of the mountain. It's just, it's larger. Everything is bigger. So you have the dew from the Mount of Zion comes down to the mountains of, Zion, of Mount Hermon, comes down to the mountains of Zion. So it's that abundance, that goodness. It's not just a little bit of dew. It's enough dew that you would ever need, that you more than you could imagine. It's the best. It's like, for me, especially in these hot days, it's getting three feet of snow. It's, it's, it's great. It's goodness. So when we're dwelling in unity, God sends the dew to grow our roots and deepen our love for one another in him. He'll use our dwelling together, our pursuit of unity as sanctifying work to become a body of one, praising the Lord. So, and then this last section, um, the Lord commands his blessing where we dwell in unity. So where unity exists amongst God's, amongst God's children, he is present. So it's, it's where unity exists he is present. And this is both the New Testament and Old Testament idea. In verse 3, so it says, you know, good and pleasant where brothers dwell in unity. And it's where there the Lord has commanded the blessing. And in Matthew 18, it says, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. We're not trying to find where the Spirit is and gathering there. That's not our job. We're not looking for the spirit like gold miners. We're not looking for the right kind of land, this old riverbed. You know, we aren't using divining rods to find where the spirit is. But when we look for unity, we look for where there are bodies of believers is unified, where they're humbly, lovingly, humbly, humbly, lovingly living, not for their own gain, not for their own interests, but also for the interests of the others. They're striving to have the mind of Christ. When they're doing those things, by by God's grace, he will be there. So when we draw together, God's spirit is coming here by the fact that we're drawing together. 
the spirit isn't here and then we're coming to it, right? We're coming here. This is the body, us together. If we were to gather outside in the field like we were during COVID or in a different place because we can't meet here, that's where the spirit's going to be. It's not like we're leaving the spirit here and we're going somewhere else. The spirit is here because God is bringing his body, his people here. But again, I'll reinforce it, we're messy people. And that doesn't mean there's going to be disagreements and tension. Just because we're being brothers, you know, believers dwelling in unity doesn't mean there's going to be disagreements and tensions. There are going to be disagreements and tensions. It's enduring through those, like David did, that that's where the unity dwells. That's where the unity develops and deepens. And it's a great line here where the Lord commands his blessing, life forevermore. So the Israelites were used to this idea of commanding blessing. You know, I think, I think Americans, especially us nowadays, we think, if we do this, God will bless us. You know, if, like, if I hit enough of the check marks, God's going to bless me and make me a good day. Kind of like that prosperity gospel, a little bit of that in there. But the Israelites were used to that. So there's this idea, and every seventh year, the Israelites were not supposed to plant fields. And this is what um, God says in Leviticus 20, or Moses writes, What shall we eat? If you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year, if we may not sow or gather in our crop? And the Lord saying, I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, so that will, I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you'll be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when the crop arrives. And then further along in Deuteronomy 28, in response to people, the people of Israel, God's talking about them obeying, loving the Lord their God with a heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know, if you're faithfully obeying the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, and it says further on, the Lord will command a blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake, and he'll bless you in the land that the Lord your God has given you. So they know that God is going to command his blessing. God is going to command his provisions. Our job is to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and God commands the provisions. God makes our way out for us. It might be hard, like, David's 20 years or so of that tension and even the time after that. But God commanded provision for David. He provided. He made those things happen. So, and it's, it's slightly different as New Testament believers looking at this psalm than as the Old Testament believers. Because our promised land is no longer that area in Israel. Right? Our promised land is Matthew 28. It's the Great Commission. It's the ends of the earth. And our job is to build up a treasure in heaven and not build up this treasure in earth. And our treasure in heaven is making disciples and baptizing others. So that's, that's what we are looking for as we are um, as in this blessing. Right. Uh, so we can't do that. We can't fulfill the Great Commission if we aren't unified. If we're holding grudges creating discord and derision, discussing when Jesus will come back or what form of baptism is correct or what type of musical instruments to play or what, we should, what kind of instruments should be on the stage, uh, whether it's a sin to vote Republican or Democrat, we're not creating unity. Those are all important things in their own right and we need to work through them. But if we're letting that create disunity, letting that create tension, break relationship, then we're dishonoring the Lord. If we're treating our brothers and sisters rudely, if we're avoiding them when we come in and we're like, I don't want to talk to that person. I'm going to stay over here. I want to leave. I'm going to look over them. I'm going to head out the bat door. Um, to avoid them, we're creating disunity. If we're talking about them behind their back, if we're talking about others behind their back, we're creating disunity. 
So we have a new pastor here sitting here today, right? We're sad to see Scott and Maria and the family leave. We're excited to see Matt and Hannah and the family come. You know, he's gonna, we're excited to see his, how his ministry is going to bless us here. But I'm sure there's a lot of anxiety behind that as well. He's going to say things differently. He's going to do things differently. And it's going to rub us the wrong way, right? So this is our chance to dwell, you know, in unity among one another. You know, pray about it if that happens. You know, it's going to happen to one another here too. You know, when those things happen, when somebody says something, when somebody hurts your feelings, if you aren't mature enough, and a lot of us aren't, I'm not, there are times where I have to go talk to somebody else first. There's plenty of times I talk to Scott or Scott or even Matt now and, you know, Brave, some other friends that I'll ask for wisdom, for insight, like, am I off base? I'll talk to Amber about it. Like, am I off base? Is this wrong? You know, get that preference and, and look for a mature believer, somebody that you know is going to tell you the truth, not what you want to hear, but what you need to hear. Look for that. And if you don't have it, look around and find the people that you admire, find the people that, that might have those attributes and start working with them. Right? Get through that, pray about it, and then talk to him about it. Right? Talk to somebody else about it. Like, work through it. Don't let it linger. Don't let it fester. Right? Because we know God promises he will command his blessing as we work through those things. That's true for any relationship that we have here and for any relationship if we have left other churches where there's hurt there. Somehow we have to work through those relationships. If they're hurt with family that are believers, we have to work through those relationships. Now there's, and this is where I'm trying not to get into a different <laughs> sermon. Um, not going to talk about how necessarily we dwell on unity, but it's an important thing to start working through and thinking about um, as we do it. Another thing we're thinking about, so today we're also transferring membership of some you know, dear brothers and sisters. The Carlines are going to a different church. Um, David's going down south. Jacoby's going out the Midwest. You know, it's, it's hard to see those people go. But praise the Lord that Jack Carlin can text me and say he's praying for me this morning, right? Like, praise the Lord that we have that. Like, outside of us, outside of what the, what the world sees, you go on Twitter, you go on social media, you go on the news, there's all disunity. It's all pushing. It's all fighting for your land. It's all, you know, peeing on your territory, right? That's, that's what it is. Like, you're not, in my, you're not in my church. You're in a different church, right? So there's got to be a reason for that. But that's not the case. I mean, like, we have, there's a reason why the Lord has allowed different types of churches in this area, and that's okay, and praise the Lord that Jack can go to a different church, Jack and Donna can go to a different church, and then we can still pray for them, and we can still hug them if we see them in the grocery store, and we can still reach out to them if we need plumbing help. Right? Like, praise the Lord for that. You know, it's not awkward. And that's what we want to pursue after. That's what we want to pursue. And that's, that's what the world, that's what makes Christians different, is that we don't sow discord. We, and they see that. That's revival-type things. When they see a body of believers loving one another, seeing this person come in that they cannot stand and the body loves that person and they know it's a hard personality, that's sanctifying revival type stuff. That's what you see and that's what changes people's minds and people's hearts. That's where the rubber hits the road is when we're dwelling in unity because it is an active, ongoing process. You know, Acts 4.32, it's great. And it's, it's so, I, did, I just picked this up this morning. Uh, when it talks about the early church, and it says they were of one heart and soul. And that's the same phrase, I'm not sure, at least the, the, uh, the English edition, uh, the ESV, is the same phrase that David has that they, they wrote in Second Samuel. The elders came and they said they were of one heart and soul with David. So this early church, they were of one heart and soul. 
No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Right? So that's what we pursue after, and that's what we love. And this is the, the very specific prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17. And it's, 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 a, it's a mouthful. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, as we, even as we are one. I am them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. I mean, one, the fact that Jesus is praying this, and he's praying for us. So we know that Jesus knows how to pray and knows what to pray. And that whole text, if you even look at it, it's, there's a lot there. But it's that overarching theme of oneness, of unity. Right? And Jesus uses that oneness as he's saying in this text. You can see in verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me. So we are, our oneness is like Father, you know, Father, the unity of Jesus and God the Father and the Spirit that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then again, just two verses later, verse 23, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. We're evangelizing when we dwell in unity. We're evangelizing to the outside world. We're evangelizing to our children. We're evangelizing to our brothers and sisters here. We're evangelizing to the people that are driving by in the GNM market. When we dwell in unity, when people see us getting along, see us meeting willingly, lovingly, excited to be one another, we're evangelizing. What they don't see is the uncomfortable conversations a lot of times. And Lord willing, our children will see those uncomfortable conversations, and they'll hear those things, and they'll see the resolution, and they'll see that you can fight, and you can not get along, and you can rub each other the wrong way, and you're not going to be best friends, but you can come here and dwell in unity, you can sing the same song, and you can look at them in the eye as you leave and say, you know, God bless you as you leave. So everything has to be surrounded in prayer. Jesus prayed for this. That's a good example of what we need to do if we want it. We've got to pray for unity. Pray for it with ourselves. Right? We can confess our sins, confess our grudges, and we have to be wise about unity. I'm not, expecting, I'm not saying you need to be best friends with everybody, but you have to be unified with them. Right? So if there's been some application here, but again, just some, some sort of like topical Band-Aid application on top of what we talked about. Make it a point to talk to somebody you haven't talked to in a while here. You know, there's one of the things that Amber hates, and, I, and it makes me terribly uncomfortable, but I've always loved it, is when you go to those churches and they have that moment where you reach around, you like turn around and you shake everybody's hand and like say, hi, how are you? For an introvert especially, it's so awkward. But I love what it signifies. I love the fact that you're forced, because you're in public so you can't be rude really, you have to shake these people's hands. And you have, I mean, it, sorry, oh, you have to shake their hands. Uh, you have to acknowledge them. You have to look at their eyes and, and, and see them, right? So that's what we need to do when we're leaving here, when we're coming here. We need to make sure we talk to that person. You can't talk to everybody, but go through the directory and say, I don't know who that person is. I've got to find this person out, right? Or go to the person that was not in the directory and you don't know their name and, and find out their name and talk to them. Make it a point to talk to somebody, right? Make it a point to invite a family member or a group of folks, a family or a group of folks into your home or out to dinner, or to coffee. Do something with them, or go play disc golf. Make it a point to create community relationships outside of meeting here together. And do it with people that you wouldn't normally do it with sometimes. It's good to build those relationships, but it's also to put yourself, it's good to put yourself outside of that comfort zone. And the most important thing to do, well, one of the most important things to do, 
is don't run away when the going gets tough because it's going to get tough. You're going to go and do these things with these people and that there's going to be that person that's going to annoy you to no end, right? Don't cut them off because of it, right? You, you, it's, you have to be wise about it. You have to seek wisdom about it. You have to pray about it, but don't cut them off. Love them still. Work through it. That's where unity comes. That's where that dew from the Mount Zion comes and grows that root. And one of the great things about is when we're pursuing unity with one another, there are a lot of other things that we aren't doing. Unity takes time. It takes energy. And when we're doing that, when we're sharpening one another, when we're smoothing off the rough sides and becoming that polished stone that people want to display, that people want to spend money to get, that people want to go and see and do, that's, that takes time, and that is evangelism, and that's, that's a good thing. And if we're, not, if, we're not sharpening, if we're sharpening one another, the world's not sharpening us. So unity takes time, it takes energy, and we, are, we know that God commands his blessing. So I'm just going to close in Philippians 2, what Mark read, which Mark read earlier. And I think it's a great text to, to read this afternoon, to pray through, to name names, to name ideas, to name things that are holding you up. As you go through this and pray through it and think about it and think about what unity truly believes, means and that we have the example of Christ who was the one that designed unity and designed the goodness around it. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray.